It's always a privilege to be asked to share here at my home church at Cornerstone. And I too love the fact that we've kept up with this summer theme of heroes of faith. My favorite kind of literature is biographies. And there is nothing better than to study the true stories of the lives of people in whose hearts God has been at work. And from that to glean things for our own lives and how God wants to speak to us, heroes of faith. But let me ask you a question. Do you recognize the following names? George Reed, Caesar Rodney, Thomas McKean, Lewis Morris, Philip Livingston, Francis Lewis, William Floyd, Charles Carroll, Samuel Chase, Thomas Stone, and William Paca. No? How about these names? Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Hancock. <laughs> well, all of these names are signatures to the Declaration of Independence, which is a document and the signatories we honor, especially this 4th of July weekend. They all signed that. They're all fathers of the nation and heroes, if you will, but most of them remain relatively unknown to us, right? Their lives, perhaps unremarkable. And so it is often with heroes of faith, unknown because they've chosen faith over fame. And today we get to look at uh, two very special lives of people who were from different backgrounds and yet their lives were intertwined because of pain, of hurt. One of them was heroic from the start. Another, not so, though famous, but learned to become a hero of faith through that hurt, walking a path of humility towards genuine honor. Of course, I'm speaking of the story, my, one of my favorite Bible stories, the story of Naaman and the servant girl. And it's found in your uh, handout. So if you look with, it, uh, with me at it right now, we're gonna work our way through this amazing narrative of hurt, humility, and honor. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet, that is actually Elisha, the prophet who is in Samaria, that's the northern part of Israel, for he, Elisha, would heal him, Naaman, of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, that's the king of Syria, saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel, then the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. A week from tomorrow, I'm going to be traveling for the second time this year to the Middle East, to Israel, where Jews for Jesus has its largest branch. And as you probably know, just from seeing the news, it is a place of great tension and conflict. 
But perhaps the greatest conflict that's going on and humanitarian crisis of our day is not in Israel, but north of Israel in Syria. Tremendous pain and suffering going on right now. And this is just a modern day representation of a conflict that's been going on all the way back to the time of Naaman. And Syria and Israel have been historic enemies of each other. Conflict that rages and often breaks out into war. And so it was as well, and we find that here. And I think it's rather remarkable that we're reading here the Older Testament, which is actually a story written by Jewish people, by people from Israel, for people initially from Israel. And yet the chapter, the story, opens up with public enemy number one, Assyrian. And not just any Syrian, Naaman was the head of the whole army, an army that had defeated Israel, an army that had enslaved Israeli people. It says in the beginning that this Naaman was an honorable man in the eyes of his master. He was famous. He had honor, but in the eyes of the king of Syria. And it says he was a mighty man of valor, which is a Hebrew colloquialism for somebody who's done a lot of battle and won a lot of victories. But he was no friend of Israel. So here we are introduced to this guy, and then the, the, the little word that's added, and he was a leper. And maybe people reading this from Israel said, good, <laughs> serves him right. But if you don't know what leprosy is, it is a dread disease. Now we've actually figured out how to cure it, but back in Naaman's day, there was no cure. And basically it's a bacterial infection of the skin that causes the loss of feeling, leading to lesions and sores on the skin, especially the extremities, the fingers, the toes, the ears, and those sores putrefy and fall off, your, your fingers fall off. It's just a horrible disease, it's very contagious, and so people were actually eventually banished, and it was pretty much a, a death sentence. And this is the man who we read about, who has come to a point, obviously, of desperation because of his illness. And then, secondly, we're introduced to this unnamed person, not famous, She's a, a servant girl, but how did she become that? She wasn't from Syria at all. She's a little girl. The Bible basically tells us she was in her teenage years, and she was kidnapped, probably by Naaman, wrenched out of her home, her family, her loved ones, her country, and brought against her will to serve in a foreign land with foreign language and foreign customs and foreign gods. She, which today we would call her a victim of human trafficking. Which if you know something about that scourge, it's a plague on our world, even on our country as well. Often unseen, but terrible. So she here is a victim of human trafficking. And so these two lives come together in this story Naaman, because of his illness, just desperate enough to push past the tragedy of his illness to seek healing in a foreign land from enemies and from an enemy God who maybe he doesn't even believe in. 
and a servant girl who in the midst of her own personal tragedy does not blame God, doesn't even leave that God behind her, but remembers that God. There's a prophet back where I used to live. He represents a God whom I believe in today. I'm not bitter against that God. In fact, so much so that she was willing to seek the well-being of the people that she was with. In the midst of an enemy ship, she doesn't say about Naaman serves him right. Instead, she says to her mistress, if only my master could meet this prophet, he would be healed. Hmm, what a remarkable response, don't you think? And it leads to, I think, our first point of reflection today, which is that our lives today do not need to be defined simply by our hurts. We all experience pain, but how we respond can make all the difference. I don't know about your life journey, but for me, hurt and pain has made an impact, a deep impact on my life, but it's also deepened and changed my life forever. The wound, the deepest wound I carry was the one when my wife of 26 years, whom I love, said that she no longer loved me and eventually divorced me. And I still feel the pain, the sense of betrayal these number of years later. And if I had the opportunity, I would never have chosen to go through this. But I have to say that God has used this loss in my life to make me a better person, I believe, more compassionate, with greater empathy for the suffering of others. And God has, through this Sorrow made me more desperate for him, who I found to be the only one who can help. Maybe you're going through some kind of loss or pain right now, maybe in the past like me, or maybe right now. If not, be patient, it's on its way. <laughs> we all have to face pain and suffering, and for you it might be like Naaman. You know, a dread disease. I know many people in our Cornerstone family are going through that. Cancer. Physical struggle. Or maybe it's the loss of relationship, a broken family. A loss of connectedness to our loved ones. Maybe, you know, that emotional trauma is just sitting with you right now. And you can't see your way out. Well, I have found, and I know you can too, that God is right here, right here, right now to help. He's the only one who can. He'll ease your pain, he'll make you stronger, and he will also transform this experience to give your life greater purpose and meaning, a future and a hope, and even a sense of destiny that you might not be able to see right now. You know, when Jesus is all you have, that's when you learn that Jesus is all you need. And that's what we need when we're in the midst of this. And, and we need it because we don't want to make that very human, natural response, which is to get stuck in bitterness over what we're going through or what we've been through. It doesn't have to define us. God can use it, even the worst of it, to transform us. And he alone can give us the strength. 
That's a big comfort, don't you think? But let's continue on with the story now because one of the most important things that God does in our lives through hurt is that he brings humility, that very godly and wonderful characteristic that doesn't always happen just because we're going through difficult things. That's certainly the case with Naaman here in our story. So we pick up in verse 5 in the middle. So Naaman departed and took with him on his journey to Samaria, that is the northern part of Israel. He took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And believe me, that wasn't, he was packing for the trip. I'll tell you more in just a minute. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. (laughs) And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. I'm being set up. How am I going to do this? This guy's looking for a reason to invade, to start another war. What's going to happen? Now, we're going to find that through this whole experience, Naaman learns humility, but it's far from that what he's doing right now. He's desperate, but he's not humble because he goes to the king and he says, give me this letter. And then he goes to his great storehouse of treasures and he brings what what is the equivalent of $20,000 in silver, $60,000 in gold, and then these 10 garments. These were not just packing for him. They were going to be a gift to the king. Beautiful clothing, very expensive. And in fact, it was the custom in the ancient Near East for people to dress in different garments in a public affair to show their wealth. And 10 garments, that's a lot of dressing, don't you think? And so that's what's happening here. He's bringing this stuff with him. And who does he go to? Now, the servant girl said the prophet in Israel, but Naaman goes to the king of Israel. He takes a letter from the most important person to the most important person with all of this wealth. What's he trying to do? He's trying to buy his healing. I got the wealth. I can make this happen. I just need to find the right person who can do it. But no money can buy what he wants. And no human king can make it happen. Naaman doesn't know that, but the king of Israel certainly does. And he freaks out. How am I going to do this? And he rips his clothes. And that, in ancient Near Eastern culture, was a sign of absolute despair. And when the king ripped his clothes, everybody else got worried. (laughs) They all knew there's a problem. And luckily for the king, the prophet heard about this problem. And so we read on in verse 8. So when it was, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him, that is Naaman, come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel." Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. 
Basically, go dunk in the river. That's what the Jordan is, is a river in Israel. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He was humiliated. This is a man who expected to be honored. And he expected to have a personal appointment with the prophet who doesn't even give him the time of day. He sends his servant boy. He wanted to have the prophet come out and show him the respect he thought he deserved and wave his hand and do what he wanted. Instead, he tells him, go dunk in the river. <laughs> through a messenger boy. Seems like profound disrespect to Naaman because he had expectations and they weren't met. And it made him angrier than a hornet. And most of the time, our own anger and disappointment come as a result of unmet expectations, don't they? Now, many have assumed that Naaman was objecting also because the River Jordan was like this muddy hole, this really filthy river and that the rivers in Damascus were so much better. Not true. <laughs> Those rivers are still in existence today. In Syria, there are places where the rivers he mentioned are muddy, and there are places where they are clean. Same is true with the River Jordan. And, and in fact, some of us at Cornerstone went to Israel a while ago, and we went to a place by the River Jordan, just south of the Sea of Galilee, and there was a baptismal service. It was a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, that part of the river is kind of muddy. It is kind of murky. But we also went to the north, which is more close to the border with Syria, to a place called Tel Dan, and also to Banyas. The river is beautiful, clean. You can see all the way down to the bottom. So this problem that Naaman is complaining about had nothing to do with the state of the water and everything to do with the state of his heart. He wasn't ready to be healed because he wasn't ready to be humble. It's been said you can't humiliate a humble person. But if anger and disappointment result from unmet expectations, then you see humility helps us to maintain realistic expectations of other people, of ourselves, and of the Lord. And isn't it interesting that we often try to complicate something that God made simple? Go dunk in the river. It's simple. You see, I think that we do this because we're trying to prove, at least to ourselves, that we deserve the things that we're looking to get. And the fact is, we don't. But the wonderful thing about God is that He wants to give them to us because He loves us. We don't deserve it, but He unreservedly loves and wants to bless. You can't buy God's love. You can't buy His mercy and forgiveness. He gives it freely, but He expects all of us who want it to come to Him in humility, like little children. Look at verse 13. And Naaman's servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? 
So Naaman went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan River, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Notice that, again, it's the servants who possess the wisdom at this point that Naaman does not. And maybe even the little Israeli servant girl had been brought from home, from Syria, along on this trip and had the opportunity to step up with the other servants and say, hey, Naaman, take a look at this again. To give wise counsel and to see something for Naaman that he couldn't see for himself. And I imagine what it must have been like for Naaman, the reluctant Baptist, <laughs> the reluctant dunker. You know, he goes and he says, oh, all right. And he goes down in the river, he dunks, and he comes back up and he says, see, didn't work. Oh, but what did Elisha the prophet say? Do it seven times. All right, second time, nah. third time, fourth time. Nothing happening. Finally, the seventh time, boom, up he comes. And it's not just that he's cured of leprosy. What does the story tell us? His skin is like that of a little child. Wow, what an incredible picture. What a metaphor, if you will, of the spiritual realm. Think about it. Leprosy is a metaphor for all that's wrong in this world and in our hearts. Spiritual leprosy makes us dull to the things of God, to his ways. It's, the Bible calls it sin. And we don't feel the things that we're supposed to feel. And God wants to cleanse us, no matter who we are, where we've been, rich or old, rich or poor, young or old, we all have this dread disease. And only God can cleanse us. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. Seven times dunk in the River Jordan, seven is the number of completion. Like Shabbat, like the seventh day on which God rested. It's a spiritual number pointing to a spiritual thing. God wants to wash us. And that idea of washing in the river is picked up by all of the prophets in Scripture. David, when he had his great falling through adultery and then murder, cries out to God in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. Wash me, Lord, and I'll be whiter than snow. Ezekiel speaks to the people of Israel and says, a day is coming, says the Lord, when I will take out of you that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. And then John the Baptist later on in announcing the ministry of Jesus invites those who want to turn back toward God to enter into baptism in that very Jordan River, a baptism of repentance. Jesus in the upper room began to wash his disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter and Peter says, oh Lord, I don't want you to wash my feet. That was not a sign of humility on Peter's part, but rather pride. Have you ever had somebody wash your feet? It's harder for the feet being washed than it is the person doing the washing because of this issue that we all struggle with. It takes humility. 
Jesus said to Peter, hey, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part of me. And of course, all of this from Naaman through David and Ezekiel and John and Jesus leads up to what exactly happens for us who follow after Jesus. Paul talks about it in Titus chapter 3 when he says he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's the washing that we all need. The baptism that we practice today in the church is an outward symbol of that inward reality. And so if Jesus has washed you, then you want to be baptized. And if that hasn't happened yet for you, I encourage you to speak to one of the pastors here because we want to show that we have been washed. And when we are, it changes our lives. In fact, the second point of reflection is that Humility in the face of our struggles, our fears, our pain is, in fact, the door to our greatest transformation. We all need to be washed. We are all far more desperately in need of God's cleansing than we realize, but we are all far more completely loved by God than we could ever imagine. And when he washes us, whether for the first time or we're coming back to, for the umpteenth time, God's washing and regeneration makes us fresh and new, a new start, like a little child, just like Naaman came up out of the water. And often it is through our own pain and suffering that we finally get a chance to hear that good word from God. We finally get a chance to experience and understand, maybe for the first time, our genuine need of Him. And that is the best news ever, don't you think? When we can experience that. Wow. But look, our story has a really remarkable conclusion. I'm reading from verse 15. And Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But Elisha the prophet said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Remon to worship there. And he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Remon. When I bow down in the temple of Remon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then Elisha said to him, go in peace. What's happening here? Naaman is finally figuring it out. Humility is coming to this man, but he hasn't quite really understood fully what's transpired in his life, like us oftentimes. And so he goes back to the prophet and he says, listen, if, if I couldn't buy this thing on the way in, let me pay you for it on the way out. <laughs> Thank you, prophet. And prophet says, it wasn't me. I'm not taking your money. It was God. Okay. So then the next part. Give me a couple of mule loads of dirt, will you? What's up with that? 
Simply this, Naaman had been transformed. He had met the one true God and it was gonna make all the difference in his life. And he said, you know what, I'm thinking ahead. I'm gonna be leaving Israel where I got this healing, where I met the only true God. And I'm going back to Syria, to my old job, to my old friends and boss, and to the old ways of worship. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want my life to be different. So please give me what I need to lay a foundation for an altar where I can worship God. And I want that foundation to come from a place that honors Him. I want to be one of those people who honor the Lord now. And so let me take this. And that's what's going on. But he recognizes he has a problem. He's got to go back to that temple, the temple of Rimon. Rimon was the sun god of the Syrians, and his boss, the king, expected him to come into that temple. And he knew that that Rimon was not really God, but his job required him to be in an environment and among people who didn't honor God. And what's going to happen when I go there? Is God going to judge me for being there, even though I'm not going to be worshiping in my heart? In fact, I'm going to take each of those occasions as an opportunity to remember what the true God did for me. Is this possible? And the prophet answers him, and he says, what does he say? He says, shalom. Shalom. Wholeness. Go in peace. The Lord will be with you, even there. Even in the temple of Rimon. And boy, is this a good word for us. As we seek to live our lives here in this community. Final point of reflection then. We can learn to honor the Lord in the places and in the midst of people who do not honor him. But like Naaman, we need to build a foundation too. We need to take that foundation for our lives from the place and the things that God has given that truly do honor him. How do you do that? How do you build a foundation for honoring the Lord in your life so that you can take that wherever you go? Well, it begins with his word. As we learn his word, as we grow to love his word, as we study and read and understand his word, God speaks to us and begins to build a, that foundation. We seek him out in prayer and, and we have a relationship with him. We talk, he, he talks, we commune with the Lord. We come to a place such as here, at Cornerstone, where the Lord and his name is honored. And we build relationships with people who like us want to honor him and we gain strength. We build that platform, that foundation. And without that, we're gonna be found, finding ourselves in the temple of Rimon and being in trouble. We're gonna find ourselves out in a community and in a place that doesn't honor the Lord and we won't have the strength to be able to continue to honor him even in our hearts. So let's build that foundation because we are all engaged as Naaman in places and with people where the Lord's name is not honored. How do we do that? How do we manage that? That's a challenge for each and every one of us. 
And God did not wash us in order to put us into some hermetically sealed spiritual bubble where we're going to be protected from that stuff every day. Many of us have to deal with it. You may be living in a home where, with family members or roommates that have no interest in helping you to honor the Lord because they don't honor Him either. And you feel that tension. Or maybe in the office, you know, where office politics can get nasty, right? The jokes, the crude language, the insinuations are just constant and you feel beaten down. The foundation of honoring the Lord in our hearts does translate. God doesn't rescue us necessarily from the temple of Remo. And we live in a culture that, in the most part, does not honor the Lord, but we can. And in fact, God wants us to be his agents of honor in those places. And he'll give us the strength to do it. We'll have his shalom. We'll have his wholeness even in those places if we seek after him. But when we choose to honor the Lord with our lives, then through our faith, our lives can become wonderfully honorable to him. And that's the end of the story. I would love to hear a little bit more, wouldn't you? <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us how it worked out for Naaman when he got back home. I'd like to believe that people recognize that there was something to Naaman more than just the fact that he had gotten healed of leprosy. With skin like a, a child, maybe his wife kind of got more interested in him. <laughs> people said, wow, this guy is behaving even differently. What's up? And I would like to believe that the one who saw it and benefited the most from it was that little unnamed Israeli servant girl. And I would like to believe that Naaman said, oh, honey, you've done so much for me, I'm going to send you home to your family. But the Bible doesn't tell us any of those things. Maybe God wants to spare us from the uh, unrealistic expectations that all stories have a happy ending because we know better, don't we? We know that life is still full of pain and hurt, and it's inescapable. We all have to deal with hurt and grief and loss in this life, but when we build a foundation to honor the Lord, while he doesn't necessarily take us out of the temple of Remo, our circumstances may not change, but you know what? We do. We change. And with that change comes the power to honor the Lord with our lives and therefore to live honorable lives of faith for him. That's what I want. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing story and for these two people, one unnamed and yet honorable and one famous who through humility found the pathway to an honorable life. May we, Lord, in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves today, find that pathway as well. May we find a way to build a foundation to honor you in our hearts. And may you then, through our lips and our lives, honor yourself in the midst of our circumstance of life, in the challenge that you've given to us 
May you honor yourself through us, you to whom all honor is due. In Jesus' name, amen.